1 John 3. Now, um, over the Christmas period, we've been answering the question, why did Jesus come into the world uh, using explanations uh, found in the New Testament? And we're looking at another one of these today from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. And before we read it together, uh, let's pray. Our Father, the Apostle John says that this letter is a proclamation of all that he had seen and heard concerning the one whose birth we celebrate at this time of year, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear John's testimony so that we too may believe and be happy in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 3, verses 4 to 6 uh, says, Everyone who <laughs> sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Amen. This is God's word. Now let me ask you a question uh, to start with. Does, ever, does Christmas ever make you stop and think about the seriousness of sin? As you're putting up your Christmas tree, trying to make sure the lights are uh, well spread out, the baubles appropriately hung, and the chocolates far enough up the tree for the children not to reach. You know, are you thinking about the seriousness of sin? Maybe as the prying hands come up, you are, but uh, you know, as you're uh, on Amazon.co.uk or uh, walking the aisles looking for that gift for the one that you love, are you in those times thinking, wow, this really reminds me that I should take sin seriously? I, I dare say you don't. Uh, I mean, forgetting about all the distractions that come with celebrating Christmas, of the buying gifts for the family and of cooking for more people than you can squeeze around your Ikea dining table, it seems that even when we celebrate the Christmas story, when we hear, about, when we hear it read at our services, see it acted out in nativities and sung about in our carols, I'm not sure that we commonly stop and think and say, do you know what? Christmas really is a motivator and a driver for my sanctification. You ever think that? I'm not sure we ever stop and think, well, Christmas reminds me that I need to take sin seriously and reminds me that I need to daily put sin to death. Happy Christmas. No. But this is exactly what John wants us to see. This is what John wants us to get. He wants us to think about this as we think about the appearing or the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ that he mentions in verse 5. This is his intent. This is John's aim. And you've got to think about the different authors and what their intention is when they talk about and lay out for us the fact of Jesus' birth. I mean, when you read Matthew, for example, when he talks about the birth of Jesus, his aim is to get you to go, wow, isn't it incredible that all those promises from hundreds of years ago are fulfilled in this baby? And then when Luke tells us of the birth of Jesus, he wants us to see the details of the story so that you can know that it's true. It's carefully investigated by him. But that's not John's intent. John wants you to think about the birth of Jesus and say, I should really stop sinning. Let me explain this for us. Here's, here's how he does this. In this one little section, he tells us three things. 
He tells us, first of all, what's wrong with us. Secondly, what Christ did for us. And thirdly, what God wants for us. And that's going to be our outline today. So number one, Christmas reminds us of what's wrong with us. This is Christmas unwrapped by John. And he pulls no punches, does he? He gets right in there and explains to us that we are sinners. And John uses two words in verse 4 to make this clear to us. See if you can pick out what they are. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You see the two words in there? Sin and lawlessness. Now, sin is a simple word used often in the Bible to, that means to miss the mark on something. So imagine that you are aiming at a target and righteousness, uh, godliness is the bullseye. But no matter how far back you stretch the bowstring, no matter how accurately you think the trajectory of the arrow is, it always drops short. And that's what our best attempt at righteousness look like, according to God's words. They fall short of that righteousness, that bullseye, all the time. The other word that John uses here is the word lawlessness, where sin is, as it sounds, breaking God's law. Now, the law here refers to all of God's instructions. And his law, the entirety of the Bible, really speaks to us as a, as a reflection of his character and his will. And what do you think happens when you deviate from that law? Well, you're deemed to be a lawbreaker. Now, think for a second about one of our own laws here in Scotland, maybe here in Edinburgh. Uh, the law says that in designated areas, you must drive at 20 miles per hour. Some people break that law by accident. They don't see the sign. They end up doing 40, uh, 30. Um, you know, but whether you see the sign or not, technically, by virtue of the existence of the law, you break the law, right? Now, others are much more wicked and uh, much more deliberate about it. 20 miles an hour on this street, I'm not doing that, and they put that heavy right foot down and they speed up. Now, obviously, in that situation, you've broken the law quite consciously. There's no debate about it. You're a lawbreaker. Now, these are the two things, the two images, really, that John wants us to have. Not of driving, obviously, because he didn't have cars in those days, but this of missing the mark and lawbreaking to help us understand or uh, to, this is what Christmas helps us to think about. Now, you might be new to all of this thinking, I'm not even sure what these laws are. You know, I'm, I'm just here for a Christmas celebration and to sing some carols and so on. I'm here with someone who brought me. Um, uh, how am I supposed to know what all these laws are? If I, you know, how do I know if I'm going to break one? Or there seems to be lots of them. That's right, there are. But Jesus came... And when he came, he summed up this law, if you like, in two key statements. So you don't need to measure yourself up against lots of laws. Jesus gives you a very helpful two-point summary of the law to measure yourself up against. He says that the law of God requires that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And just to be clear, he says, everybody's your neighbor. Everybody is your neighbor. Now, what 
what the Bible teaches and what John is saying in this passage is that if you haven't done that, love God and love neighbor uh, fully, heartily, always, and without fail, then you have sinned. You are, according to God's words, a lawbreaker. Whether it's accidentally or purposefully, there is not one among us who has not broken God's law, okay? Lawlessness is the way John describes us. Christmas gets us thinking about what's wrong with us. Now, here's the thing. God takes the breaking of his law very, very seriously, really seriously. And and didn't we see that earlier in Genesis chapter 3 in the passage that Ross read from us? Uh, read for us. When God called on Adam and Eve to talk about their disobedience when they ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, he didn't say, ah, do you know what? It's okay. It's just a mishap. You've learned your lesson. I'm sure it'll never happen again. No, you'd never hear him say, look, maybe I've just been this little bit too strict. I suppose I could make some changes to these laws. No, God gave the law to communicate the beauty and the wonder of his character. The law in itself communicates, if you like, it's an expression of what God is like. It's the character of God revealed in behavior that God finds pleasing. It's like the righteousness of the bullseye, 100%. God hits that every time, never misses the mark. You know, God never, ever breaks a law. And that is by virtue of the fact that he is deity, God. That is one of the most beautiful and attractive things about him. We hate sin. Sin is ugly. Sin affects us deeply, personally, in terms of guilt and shame. And we see the effects of our sin on other people as it makes them cry when we hurt them. When their feelings are hurt, when we turn our back on them. In a million different ways, we see how painful and how hurtful sin really is. But not God's. God's is 100% perfect. And he communicates to us in his words that this law of his, whether it's all of them together or summed up in love God and love neighbor, he says, this is not a set of arbitrary restrictions designed to spoil your fun world. This is a reflection of who I am, and it's a mirror showing you honestly that you're in a mess. Now, let me ask you, what do you think happens to people who break the law? Well, it's really simple. They are punished. There are consequences for actions. It's the same in our country. If you break the 20 mile an hour speed limit, there, are, there is punishment for that. But similarly, there is punishment for sin. God is not some unscrupulous janitor sweeping sin under the carpet. He is the judge of all the earth, absolutely and committed to justice. That's what we all want. But here's the good news of Christmas. He sent his son to take that punishment on himself. So although John tells us, look, this is sin unwrapped, Christmas tells us, What's wrong with us? In verse 5, he goes on to show sin removed. Christmas shows what Christ has done for us. Look at verse 5 with me. You know that he appeared. Now, that word appeared there is, is a word that just tells us that he came. 
It's talking about his birth. Uh, he appeared, he came from somewhere to come here, came from heaven, laid aside his majesty, came into this world to be born as a baby. So his birth, his appearance, he came, he appeared, so that, here's the purpose, he might take away our sins. Take away our sins. So you see, Christmas and the coming of Christ is God's solution for the problem of human sin. And his deity, this is what John is highlighting for us, his deity makes him the ideal person to resolve the greatest of problems. Spurgeon says, sin, if it is so great that God himself deigned to come to earth and take upon himself the form of a man, if it is so that the ever-blessed second person of the Trinity was actually born of a virgin, that he might become man like ourselves, and if it is so that he came here to fight the devil, and that he, was, he put his foot down against the advance of the enemy, then I have hope for mankind, I have hope for myself. I have hope that sin may be overcome, and as we know and are sure that God has come down among us and has taken upon himself our nature, since this is the very fundamental truth of our holy faith, we see how sin can be put away. We see how sin can be removed. Even when we look at the baby in the manger, so we look at babies, and we get all sentimental and gushy. It, I mean, when you, you, know, you can hold a baby in your arms, and all of a sudden, you, it seems like it reduces your age by about, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. It takes you back to your infancy. You start talking in ways that we would never talk to. Like, what, what language is that? And who teaches that? Now, obviously, we're trying to engage with the child, but the truth of the matter is that when we look into the face of the baby born at Christmas time, it's not, it's not gushy sentimentality. This, is, this should floor you. It is that amazing. He didn't come just to give us a season to gather together as a family so that you can establish certain traditions and make memories together. All those things are wonderful and good and godly if we do them with thanksgiving. But when we look into the face of that baby in the manger in our minds and reflect on what Christmas is all about, we realize he came to take away our sin, our mess. I'm a lawbreaker. Now, even if I tried to scrub myself up and work on that arrow firing, on that archery, I still wouldn't hit the mark. I would fall short every time. But he came. And since he is God, righteous in every way, as John goes on to say, sinless, then there's hope for us. Only a sinless one could take away sins. And we know from other passages that by virtue of the virgin birth, he was born without original sin. And by virtue of his sinless life, he was found by God to be righteous. And that's what qualified him to be the sacrifice for sin. He's like that goat from the Old Testament law. Where the sins of the people would be laid on it and it would be sent away. Never to be seen again. That is what Jesus does with our sin. Our sins are laid on him when he dies on the cross and God 
accepts that offering, accepts that sacrifice for our sin when he died in our place, and they are taken away, removed, gone. You see, the cross of Christ is a place where those sins are ultimately removed. He was punished as if he was the worst of sinners, the greatest of lawbreakers, even though he had no sin. Do you believe that? Have you thought about that at Christmas time? Because that's what John wants us to think about when we think about his appearing, when we think about the birth of Christ. That's what Christmas ought to remind us of. It reminds us of what's wrong with us, first of all, and it reminds us of what Christ has done for us, second of all. Now, thirdly, Christmas reminds us of what Christ wants for us now, today, and every day. Look with me at verse 6. He says, no one who lives in him, in other words, who's a Christian, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. In other words, what God wants for us is to respond to this news. What John wants for us to do is to see the impact and, the, 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 and apply the truth of the gospel to our everyday lives. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. It's a joy to have you. You're welcome any Sunday to join us. Now, I, I want you to understand that this is the primary reason why we celebrate Christmas as Christians. That we have come to that point where we've acknowledged the mess of our lives. And it didn't matter whether one person's life was absolutely horrendous looking, another one looks fairly squeaky clean and did a few things wrong. It doesn't matter. God says in his eyes, all are on the same level, all have sinned, fallen short. We're people who've come to realize that. And we are people who have found in Jesus Christ the joy of forgiveness of sins. We've found the testimony of him in the Bible to be true and the promise of eternal life in his name, forgiveness of sins, and a future in, him, in heaven with him when we die to be absolutely wonderful. We've looked into it. We've found it to be true, and we would invite you to do the same thing. Have you thought about it in any great depth? You know, we've just read three verses together about the birth of Jesus. Have you ever read, you know, the first two chapters of Luke, which also talk about the birth of Jesus? The first two chapters of Matthew. Have you read through one of the accounts of what Jesus did and said when he was here and there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? It has to be one of the most dignifying things that you can possibly do in relation to Christmas to consider the story itself for yourself. And we'd love to help you do that. There are, um, there are New Testaments and Bibles that are available at the back. They're free. If you ask one of the folks on the bookstall, they'd be delighted to give you one to take away. And if you don't know where Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is, ask them to put a bookmark in one of the Gospels for you or turn over the pages or something. They'd be delighted to help you with that. Maybe you want to think a little bit more about Christmas itself. There are free books for you to take away today. This one by Rico Tice called A Very Different Christmas, What Are You Hoping For This Year? is a great little book which helps to open up the story of Christmas and what it means. And it reminds us of, the, of a way to respond to the truth that Christ came to take away our sins. Now maybe you understand that. Maybe you're feeling that deeply already today. 
you know, you can respond immediately if you like. I don't really even care if you listen to the rest of this sermon. You know, all you need to do is say sorry, thank you, and please to God in prayer, and you will be his child. You can have your sins forgiven and taken away by saying, sorry, I've sinned against you. Uh, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin and take them away. Uh, please come into my life and help me to live for you. But if you're here today and you are a Christian, well, John wants Christmas to be a driver for your sanctification. He talks earlier on in this passage in the first two verses about God's incredible love, and he's just bowled over by it. He's just like, oh, how great is God's love that he's lavished on us. It's awesome to be loved like that. And then he talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back again. So he's talking about Christ's past appearing in this text. Now, just before it, he talks about another appearing, which is coming in the future. And what John is trying to do is to try and help us to know how we ought to live in between those two comings. That first coming as the baby in the manger to die for our sin. And that second coming on the clouds of heaven uh, in the sight of all bringing in the new heaven and new earth. He wants us to live in this moment by putting sin to death. To be killing sin. John wants us to look at the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus so that we say, wow, sin actually is really serious. If it necessitated this kind of action from God, this kind of activity by him, and if it necessitated the second person of the Trinity, God himself, to come into the world to deal with it, it must be a big deal. Now, why is he saying all this? He's saying all this because among the Christians that he is writing to are those who are careless with sin. They haven't really been thinking much about it. There are people in the church there who are claiming to be Christians, but not really making any attempt to throw off sinful acts and put on Christ-like virtues. But John says, you need to look at your life. If you look at your life and you make a habit of sinning without really being sorry for it or without repenting of it, then you may not be living in him and you may not be known by him. That is in a saving sense. That means you're still in your sins. They've not been taken away. That punishment is still over you and that is the scariest predicament you could possibly be in. That's why John's talking about it. It's that serious. Now that might be true of you too. In many ways, that's true of me, actually. There are times when I don't take the breaking of God's law seriously. Or I don't always see sin as sinful or deadly. You know, we can be like this guy. Let me put this guy on screen. We can be like this guy, the frog. Sitting around all day, faffing about. And then you know what happens. You know, temptation comes my way. I uh, like the, f the frog in the picture. I spot something that I quite fancy, even though it's sinful. And first, my eyes are on it, right? I see it. But then my heart is on it, right? I, I want it. And then my hands are on it, you see? I've, I've grabbed it, all the while forgetting that sin is deadly, serious, as John has just highlighted for us. Christmas reminds us of that. All the while forgetting 
that it's deadly. Now, this is exactly what this frog has just done with this beetle larva. His eyes were on it. He saw it. His heart was on it. He wanted it. Then his, well, his mouth was on it, really. And uh, he's grabbed it. Now, boys and girls, here's a question for you. What do you think is happening in this picture? Can I ask you, who is eating whom? Well, the thing in the frog's mouth is actually the eponymous beetle larva. Do you know what it does? It struts. It walks around, cocky as you like, in front of frogs all day long, making itself look tasty to eat. Okay? And it waits for the frog to take a great big jump at it and to take it into its mouth. Then what it does is this larva clamps its tight pincer jaws on the frog's tongue. And guess what? It does not let go for anything. And sometimes it waits. This is a bit gross, right? So if, it's, if you don't like gross things, put your fingers in your ears just for a second. Sometimes it waits. We've got a church full of people who like gross things. No one did that. Um, sometimes it waits until it's actually inside the frog's tummy before it latches on. And then it doesn't let go. Now guess what? It's deadly. It actually doesn't let go until the frog is exhausted. And even before the frog has actually died, it starts to eat it from the inside. Isn't that the most minging Christmas illustration you have ever heard in your life? Whoa, beat that, Mr. Reese. Brothers and sisters, friends, boys and girls, I'm not joking. This is what sin does to us. Be killing sin, said John Owen, or sin will be killing you. The things that we fix our eyes on, the things that we start to desire in our hearts, the things that we take hold of, thinking all the while it's just a little thing, it's not a big deal. God says, John says, it is deadly. And Christmas ought to remind you to be killing sin. It's deadly. It's not something to be faff about with. Now, what difference does that make in our daily lives? For you boys and girls, for example, when you disobey your parents by not coming off your Xbox when they ask you to, you're breaking God's law. You're sinning. God has put your parents in charge of you to look out for you until you're old enough to do that to your, for yourself. But I dare say that when you're shouting, wait a minute, or mourning, that's not fair. You're just not feeling the danger of that sin in that moment, are you? It probably actually feels like you're kind of, well, I'm just practicing the independence that I'm going to have when I'm a grown-up. But God says you're breaking God's law and sin is deadly and it will be killing you if you don't kill it. Grown-ups, we can be doing the same in all sorts of ways. Whether we're talking about materialism or lust. Whether the things that we look at on a screen or the way we spend our money or the way we respond to our spouse with frustration and anger, just because we've had a bad day, we think we're entitled to just be a little bit grumpy. You're a lawbreaker. And John says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
Now, John isn't saying that you need to be sin-free to show that you believe in Jesus. I want to make that crystal clear. I mean, I imagine, imagine some of us, when we look at verse 6, take a deep breath when we hear that. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Oh, man alive. What does that mean? <laughs> I sin all the time. Is that me? I'm a goose. Or we can take a deep breath at that. It's too easy to get in a panic when asking, what does that mean? But actually, brothers and sisters, I mean, learn to read the Bible in context. It's a simple allaying of your fears and anxieties when you read passages like that. All you need to do is to know that he's not saying that, is to read the context. I mean, the immediate context, we see that it's plain to see John has given people one thing to look for as proof of salvation. It's a growing desire for holiness. In this whole passage, he actually offers three things that ought to stir us in us that desire for holiness. Or well, Christ is coming back to remove sin completely. That's what he talks about in verses 2 and 3. And he says, he's coming back. Until then, purify yourself. See, he wants you to put sin to death. Sanctification is the goal when we keep in mind that Christ is coming back. And in our passage, secondly, he points back to Christ's first coming and says, he came to take away sin, so don't muck about with the things that he came to take away. No, stop sinning. And then just after that, in verses 7 to 9, he points back again to give another reason for Christ's coming when he says that Jesus came to take down the temper, tempter, the devil himself. And because Christ did that, we share in his triumph and become more and more like our champion, Jesus. Again, sanctification in three little snippets. We've just looked at the middle one today. But in the wider context of the whole book, all you have to do is read chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where to counter this notion that, oh, we need to be sinless? No. My dear children, he writes, I write this to you so that you will not sin, right? Nobody wants to sin. But if anyone does sin, recognizing the reality of it, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who did not miss the mark. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And all God's people said, phew. Praise God. So John isn't saying that you're only a Christian if you live a sinless life. What he is saying is this. When you believe in Jesus, there is in you this desire to no longer progressively, passionately, and unrepentantly indulge in sinful, law-breaking activity in the sins that he came to take away by his first appearing and in his second appearing will get rid of them completely. That's what he's saying. If you habitually go on unrepentantly, not giving a hoot about the sin that you commit, not feeling the conviction of sorrow in your heart, that momentary conviction that's brought by the Spirit and His words, then that's a time to be concerned, John says. That's the test he wants us to undergo. We will stumble and fall, but the, t the time to be worried is if repentance is absent, brothers and sisters. If you're not sorry, your heart might be hard. And although Christ came to take away sin and take down the tempter, as he says in verse 8, he's removed sin's power, but its presence remains... The time for its total obliteration is to come when he appears for that second time. But in the meantime, we remember that Christmas, Christmas reminds us that every day is a day of sanctification. 
So let's allow John's few words as he reflects on Christ's first appearing, his coming, to stimulate us not only this Christmas time, but all throughout our lives to live a Christ-like life. That's what we'll be like, says John earlier in this passage, for we will see him and be like him as he is. Now, some of you might well be using this time of year to get ready for the new year. You're keen for a new pattern of living, new patterns in relation to what to do with your time, your money, how you're going to raise your children, disciple them, how you're going to read the Bible with people who are close to you, new patterns of devotions for yourself. I want to encourage you to see that John sees all of those things as valuable. If our aim is to think through how can we be more like Jesus Christ, So Christmas reminds us, brothers and sisters, of what's wrong with us. It reminds us of what Christ did for us. And it reminds us of what Christ wants for us. Sin is exposed and unwrapped for us. Sin is taken away and removed by Christ. And sin is to be killed by us in the day to day. Let's pray together.